Well, now it's time to come to our preaching passage for today. And that passage comes from the book of Acts. We continue in this series, a great series through the book of Acts. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 19. Hear the word of the Lord. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer For the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, He was strengthened. This is God's word. Amen. Amen. Well, we come to the next in our series in this uh, this book of Acts. And, of course, it's a very famous story of the conversion of Saul to become the Apostle Paul. But it's placed in a narrative that Luke is telling And this narrative is particularly important that we today have at the forefront of our minds. There are lots of other narratives that people are telling. What is the narrative that that we should be telling, that we believe? And Luke is telling this narrative. It's a narrative of good news, how we need good news today. You turn on the TV, you look at your Twitter feed, you go to Facebook, and there's just bad news after bad news after bad news. But Luke is telling a narrative of good news. And that good news is the good news of the kingdom of God. The gospel, which means good news, the gospel of the kingdom of God. 
And the story that Luke is telling is how that good news, that message of the kingdom of God, moves out from Jerusalem and then to Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. And as we saw last week, there is a particular part of that good news that is God's way of embracing the excluded. We looked last week at uh, the Ethiopian eunuch who was excluded because of his disability from the temple, who was marginalized and ostracized and uh, treated with disdain because of the color of his skin, an Ethiopian. And yet God embraces the excluded. And he does it through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there's the Ethiopian who's baptized, who's now included in the family of God, God's multinational, multi-ethnic family. When we gather together on the final day around the throne of God, Revelation chapter 7, a people of every tribe and nation and language. And that's God's purpose. The good news from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, including the Ethiopian, and thereby to the end of the earth. But that African church, the Ethiopian church, still standing strong. Augustine, the great theologian, an African from uh, Hippo in North Africa. And the influence throughout the world of that gospel today. And so we come to this famous story of Saul's conversion. And in the midst of this narrative that Luke is telling of how the good news of the kingdom of God goes from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth, we have a difficulty that is now going to be addressed by God himself. And that difficulty is persecution. There is a persecutor, there's a persecutor, and uh, the people, God's people, are being persecuted. But in the midst of that persecution, we see the power of God, a persecuted people and a powerful God. The persecutor is Saul. Uh, verse 1, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Such is the nature of persecution. It is uh, one that uh, begins in the heart with a sense of hatred towards God's people and then is verbalized with uh, name-calling, threats, accusations, uh, verbal discrimination against those who believe in Jesus, and even threats of murder, attack. Don't do this, otherwise you go to jail, and if you go to jail, we can kill you. Such was the kind of language that Saul and those around him were breathing out, speaking against God's people, this persecuted people. But not only was it um, verbalized, verbal threats, which we should not uh, diminish in their, their, in their danger. When, when, when we have a, a freedom to be able to say things that are not only antagonistic, but actually vicious and vile, threats and murder, then it's not too long that uh, thereafter actual physical attacks come against God's people. But not only were there these verbal threats that Saul and those with him were breathing out against uh, the people of God, he gathered a, a legal permission. And so he goes, verse 1, to the high priest, and then verse 2, he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So Saul's not satisfied having driven God's people out of Jerusalem, and when they went, they took the gospel with them wherever they were scattered. 
But Saul's not satisfied with that. He pursues God's people. And persecution, uh, that word persecution that's used in verses 4 and 5, persecution, the word has behind it the sense of pursuit, even a hunting. Saul is hunting them down. He's going to Damascus. He's not satisfied that they've left. He's pursuing them. He's after them. He's a predator hunting his prey. And in order to do that, not only is he verbalizing threats and murder, he's also getting some kind of pseudo-legal permission to do it. He asks for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. He's getting high permission from the high priest. And see, that's a classic pattern of persecution too. It begins in the heart with hate, and then it's expressed with verbal attacks and even threats of violence and murder. And then it moves to getting legal permission. And the persecutor, you see, in order to avoid a sense of self-recrimination, a sense of guilt, their conscience is assuaged by the fact that they have legal permission. Saul, attacking others made in the image of God, has letters from the high priest. Therefore, surely it must be okay. And so he pursues them. He hunts them. He's hunting them down, not just in Jerusalem, but now to Damascus as well. He's running after them to get them. They are a persecuted people. Now, you think, well, that was fine then, but that's not happening anymore against Christians. Well, of course it is. God's people are being persecuted all around the world. Uh, The 20th century uh, saw more martyrs for Jesus than any other century in the history of of the church, and it has not slowed down since. I uh, remember one uh, friend of mine who was uh, persecuted in a uh, Middle Eastern country. He'd become a Christian. Uh, He was in the army of that country. His uh, fellow soldiers caught him with a Bible, and they beat him up. He was fearful for his life. Fearful for his life uh, of his family. He had to flee the country, to move to another country, having no citizenship of that country that he moved to. That's just one instance that we multiply many, many times today. Even some of the folk from all over the world who come and join the church, where they study here, join College Church, where they study here and come and then join the church from other countries. After then, they finish their studies and they must go back home. I've met with a number of them with tears in their eyes as they go back with boldness and courage following Jesus, but knowing what probably awaits them. Pursuit, hunting down, persecution. It happens today. Now you say, well, that's fine, but it doesn't happen in the West, in America. Certainly it is uh, true that Christians are not in danger of their lives for being those who believe in Jesus today in America or uh, in the Western world. But there are signs of ongoing threats. And many a preacher in the last 30 years has warned that if the ideology that is at work in some parts of the Western world doesn't change, persecution is coming. You see, there was an ideology that drove Saul. And that ideology was that Jesus was a false prophet 
and that the followers of Jesus had been, um, uh, had, 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 were believing heresy and therefore they should be stopped and it was dangerous. And similarly today, there is an ideology that says that anyone who believes that there's only one way to God is believing something dangerous. It is discriminatory. And uh, there are many verbal attacks against Christians today, those who believe the Bible. You may have experienced it yourself. And not only are verbal attacks, there are sometimes even legal um, maneuvers to threaten Christians against uh, believing certain things that the Bible teaches. Now, of course, it's possible for Christians to be foolish, to, to express their beliefs in, in impolite, rude, uh, angry ways, and none of that should be encouraged. But at the same time, we'd be utterly naive today if we did not read, <laughs> read the tea leaves, <laughs> read the situation we're faced in, and realize today there is an ideology at work that views that anything that is claiming what would be expressed by such people as an exclusivity, that is, Jesus is the only way to God, and there is a right way to live and a wrong way to live. That however much we say, look, no, but when you come to Jesus and love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and self, then you're empowered to love your neighbor whatever they believe. Nonetheless, there's a counter-ideology. And so I, I've often uh, thought to myself, I can imagine a day, not, not today, but maybe in a decade or so, maybe in 20 years or so, that ideology is not exposed for the series of lies that it is. When someone who preaches from the Bible, who says that Jesus is the only way to God, who says that certain moral behavior is wrong, that there is a judge of all the earth and there is heaven and hell, that that kind of message could, could get me in prison. I would not be surprised if that, if that was the case in 20 years or so, unless God sends revival and awakening, and, and we all pray that he does. A persecuted people. No, we're not being physically persecuted in the West, but Christians are around the world. And you can see the signs of uh, an attack against those who believe that Jesus is the only way to God. What are we to do then? Well, we have a persecuted people, but we also have a powerful God. It's amazing what God does here. And God's power here is shown in, in, in four ways. It's shown in the conversion of Saul. This blinding light of verse 3, he, suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and Saul falling to the ground, verse 4, he heard a voice saying to him, and why are you persecuting me? And who are you, Lord? And, and Saul is utterly changed by the sovereign power of God. Saul doesn't um, pretend that he's doing the right thing. When he hears the voice from heaven, he doesn't say, well, who are you to talk to me? I've got a letter from the high priest. <laughs> no, he knows he's wrong. And when God speaks to him, all he can say is, Who are you, Lord? He's confessing his sin. And then when Ananias prays for him, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the doctrine of regeneration. That the Damascus Road experience of Saul, in all its extreme and exceptional circumstances, is a template for 
every real conversion today, every real conversion throughout history. Saul wasn't pursuing Jesus. He was persecuting God's people. Yet God in his sovereign power reached out to Saul and changed him. It's that message that we need to remember today. God is seeking you. God is after you. God loves you. And God is powerful to change your heart by his spirit. George Whitfield, the great 18th century evangelist, said this about the message of, of the new birth, the regeneration, the true message of the Bible about conversion. He said it made its way like lightning into the minds of the hearers. A light from heaven. It's like a new birth. This isn't religious moralism. This isn't five new ways to be a good person. This is a total change of life. From Saul, named after the, the king who <laughs> compromised, to Paul. Little Paul. Paul means little. Some ancients thought he was no bigger than four foot four. Tiny little Paul, diminutive. Massive in his influence because of the power of God through conversion. God's power is shown through conversion. But God's power is also shown through Ananias. God's power is shown through the ministry of every single Christian believer. Ananias. He's not well known. He, 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 he wasn't a pastor. He wasn't an apostle. He wasn't famous. He wasn't an elder or deacon. He, he was Ananias. And yet he says, when Jesus speaks to him in a vision, he says, here I am, Lord. And when Jesus tells him to go and minister to Saul, he, he says, but, but Lord, I've heard that he's, he's persecuting people. And Jesus replies, no, he's my chosen instrument. And Ananias obeys. And he prays for Saul. And Saul receives the Holy Spirit. Ananias. You may say to yourself, Look, I, I'm never going to be an Apostle Paul. It's too late for me. I'm too old. It's, it's too soon for me. I'm too young. I, I can't be a, an Apostle Paul. I'm a mother at home with my children. I, I'm a father with a, a busy life. I don't have time to go around the world preaching the gospel. But you can be an Ananias. The ministry of every Christian believer. You say, how? When the Lord calls you to do something, say, here I am, Lord. When the Lord presents to you a, a younger Christian who needs encouragement and prayer, say, here I am, Lord. I can encourage that person and pray for that person. When you're online on Facebook or YouTube, you know, the influence today of just one person, like a 20-year-old, 15-year-old, 25-year-old with access to YouTube who presents creative solutions to communicate the gospel in today's context. You could be that. Massive influence. The ministry of every Christian believer. You know, pastors, people like me, don't do all the ministry. Our job is to equip God's people to do the ministry. You're an Ananias. Train up your children. Commit. You've been given children. 
Look after them. Train them up. You've been given a job. Be salt and light in that working world. That's how God's power is shown through the ministry of every, every Christian believer. But there's another way too that God's power is shown. And this is through the bold, sacrificial preaching of the gospel. This is what the apostle Paul was called to. Uh, Verse uh, 15, Jesus says, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, the called, bold proclamation of the gospel. He's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name, that's the name of Jesus, before the Gentiles, that is all nations, and kings, those in authority, bold before kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. We interviewed Josh Maurer earlier in the service, and now here, and when I was pastor back in New Haven, and then when I was a student pastor back in Cambridge in England, over the years, in God's grace and mercy, I've been a part of training up and helping to encourage many, many different preachers who are now in all sorts of different places. And I can tell you this one thing. If you sign up to be a preacher, you are signing up for unusual suffering. Now, all Christians uh, are called to suffer. It has been given to us not only to believe in the Lord Jesus, but also suffer for his name. That is true for us all. We're going one way, the world is going another. There will be points of tension. But if you are called to stand on a platform, whether a platform like this or any other opportunity to proclaim the truth, you can guarantee that the slings and arrows will come your way. You're signing up for unusual suffering. That's what Paul said to Timothy in his last letter, 2 Timothy. He said to him, endure hardship. It's going to come. Don't be naive or overly romantic. Young man who wants to be a preacher, I'm glad you want to be a preacher. But know what you're signing up for? You're signing up for suffering? I look at my friends all over the place who are preachers, and it just seems like inevitably that those who are preachers of the gospel will suffer more. It is part of God's purpose. So that in the suffering of his servants, the light and truth and joy of the cross and the resurrection power of Jesus might be displayed. That's how God's power is shown through the suffering of his servants. But there is one final way here in this passage that God's power is shown, and it is the most important. God's power is shown in whom is persecuted. Did you see what this passage says about who really is being persecuted? Verse 4. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting them? Doesn't say that. Who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whose people you are persecuting. doesn't, Doesn't say that. Saul, Saul, verse 4, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus. 
whom you are persecuting. In the mystery of God, God's people are the body of Christ, of whom Jesus is the head. And when you attack the church, you're attacking Jesus. I I don't know whether we have any souls listening. Any people have got to the point where they're so disappointed with the church, they're angry at the church. When they're so fed up with the way the church has done this or that, they're ready to attack the church. When they look at church history and are so disappointed at how the church behaved at various points in church history that they're ready to, to throw bricks at the church. Remember, if you attack the church, you're attacking Jesus. Be careful. God's people are God's people. The body of Christ is Christ's body. Why are you persecuting me? But there's another aspect to this. Jesus is not only persecuted by Saul, he's persecuted for Saul. For he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sins and live for righteousness by his wounds you are healed. The persecutor who persecutes Jesus is saved through the persecution that is for him, that is in his place, that is a substitute for what he, Saul, really deserves, that Jesus suffered in the place of even the persecutor. Father, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I think in all of human literature, the story that best encapsulates this is in Les Miserables. And there's a pivotal turning point in that, in that great piece of literature where Jean Valjean, a thief, goes to stay with the bishop. And he's given hospitality. Jean Valjean has been rejected by everyone else, but he's allowed to stay at the bishop's house. But he's a thief. And in the middle of the night, he gets up and steals the silver from the bishop and the church. And he escapes. But then he's caught. And he's taken back to the bishop with his sack full of silver. Symbolic representation of his attack, even against the bishop, even against the church. And the police say to the bishop, this man claims that you gave him the silver. How ridiculous is that? 
And the bishop says, oh, yes, of course, I did. But I'm very angry with you, Jean Valjean. Why did you not take the candlesticks too? The police are astonished. And as they leave, and the bishop gives Jean Valjean these highly expensive candlesticks and puts them in his sack, he looks Jean Valjean in the face and he says, my brother, with this silver, I bought your soul. You are released from evil and wrong. I give you back to God. Oh, Jesus died for you. Oh, he paid the price that you deserved. Persecutor, hater of God's people. That your soul might be given back to God. Oh, Lord God, I do pray that you would, by your spirit, your power of God in conversion, reach out to some, even this morning, to bring them back to you. I pray also, Lord, that you would show your power through the ministry of every Christian believer, every Ananias, through online communication, through encouragement, through discipleship, through training up children. Lord, would you use us all as, as you use Ananias, every the ministry of every single Christian believer. Lord, I pray for those of us who are called to be pastors, preachers, Christian leaders. I pray, Lord, that we would endure hardship. I pray, Lord, that you would give us courage. I pray, Lord, that you would use not only what we say, but how we live to point others to you. And most of all, Lord Jesus, I pray that you who suffered for us, that you who are persecuted by us and for us, that by your Spirit you might reach out to win back the souls of many to a life of transformative service in church, at work, at home, on the mission field, as pastors and preachers, as mums and dads, as children, boys and girls. Also, Lord, the good news of the kingdom of God might spread through us, even in these dark days, the light of your gospel from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. In Jesus' name, amen.